Uh, good morning. Uh, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I also bring you greetings from uh, Pittsburgh Presbytery. Uh, they reached out to us that you guys needed some assistance with pulpit supply, and so we're happy to help you however we're able to. Um, please turn in your Bibles, or you can follow along if you have it printed somewhere. Uh, Psalm 48. That'll be our sermon text for today, Psalm 48. Now, when we look at the book of Psalms, we know that it's actually a a collection of uh, many different psalms, and there are uh, different authors attributed to some of these psalms. Uh, Many of them were written by uh, David, and that's pretty well attested. And uh, Solomon has a couple... But here we're going to look at uh, a psalm written by the sons of Korah. Um, not much is really known about these sons of Korah, except that they were probably uh, a priestly uh, family um, at the time of the uh, uh, beginning to uh, assemble the temple. Um, David took a, a lot of stock in music, and having that be a big part of the worship of the Old Testament church. And so uh, the book of Psalms uh, was one of the uh, um, uh, one of the resources they had for, the, uh, for their worship. Um, when we look at Psalm 48, we'll notice some of the um, original uh, imagery that is portrayed in the psalm, particularly the, the city of Jerusalem itself. Um, the first mention of Jerusalem in Scripture would be Genesis chapter 22, uh, the land of Moriah where uh, Abraham was sent to uh, actually sacrifice his own son Isaac was actually the very same area in which Jerusalem would eventually be uh, settled. And so we will take a look at this psalm. What does it say to us today? And, of course, what was it saying to the covenant community so many centuries ago? And as we turn to the Word of God, let us pray one more time. Again, our Father, we come now to your Word. We pray that you would silence in us any voice but your own and give us uh, uh, hearts that we can uh, understand your Word that we can perceive it, that we can spiritually discern it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from Psalm 48. This is God's holy word. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. For behold, the kings assembled, they came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic, they took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there, anguish as a woman in labor. But the east wind, by these wind you shattered the ships of Tarshish. 
as we have heard, so have we seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Jerusalem rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels. That you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God, forever and ever. He will guide us forever. May the Lord establish his word in our hearts this morning, I pray. The first thing that I would have you notice from our scripture for this morning is the church, a city of praise. The church, a city of praise. Well, a few moments ago I mentioned the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the focal point of this uh, sermon, uh, this uh, psalm. And um, again, uh, talking about the history of Jerusalem for the people of God, it has always been a very significant city. Um, as a reminder that uh, uh, Jerusalem was the area of Moriah where Abraham was sent to sacrifice Isaac. Now, Moriah is not a single mountain peak, but it's actually a series of, um, of ridges with a maximum peak of about 2,500 feet. Um, now, Zion is actually a particular mountain peak, and it's about uh, maybe about a mile from where the temple eventually stood. Uh, now, a lot of times in the Psalms, uh, the word Zion will be used in a general sense for all of Jerusalem. But then there are other times where, when the Psalms talk about Zion, it's talking about the people of God, the people who are the worshipers in that city. And so, um, Jerusalem uh, still continues to have great significance in the world for Jews and for Christians, and even for Muslims, Jerusalem is a very holy city. Now, um, in Second uh, Samuel chapter 5, this was the story of when David and his armies uh, actually took control of Jerusalem. And then in chapter 6, David makes Jerusalem the capital of the Israelite nation. It was one city that was not in possession of, by any of the tribes. Uh, if you remember in the Old Testament, uh, the, when the Israelites went into Canaan, they divided up the land according to tribe. Uh, there were 12 tribes, of course. Now, Jerusalem was not possessed by any of the tribes, and so this made a perfect central location for the capital of the Israelite uh, kingdom. And Jerusalem would be the center of worship for the Old Testament uh, church. And so um, Jerusalem 
has, again, held great significance for the people of God. And this would continue into the New Testament era. Even in the New Testament era, we see Jerusalem still a very significant center of, of worship. In fact, uh, the, the special presence of God could really only be experienced in Jerusalem. Uh, the uh, men of Israel were commanded three times a year to go to Jerusalem for certain festivals. And uh, in Jerusalem was where the temple was, where uh, also the, the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant were. And so in order to uh, be in that special presence of God, going to Jerusalem was necessary. Now, Years later, when Jesus would encounter the woman in the uh, uh, woman at the well in Samaria, there was actually a debate between Jesus and her about where is the proper place of worship. Now, for the Samaritans, they worshipped on Mount Gerizim, and of course, for the Jews, they would go to Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Now. Uh, just a quick reminder about who the Samaritans were. Uh, years after the time of David and Solomon, the kingdom would divide up into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And the northern kingdom of Israel was eventually conquered by the Assyrian Empire. When the Assyrian Empire conquered Israel, they would exile people out of the land but then they would bring in other tribes and other people groups into that region and repopulate it. And if there were any Hebrews who were still living in that area, many of them began to intermarry with the groups that were brought in. And so as a result of that, you had a mixed ethnic group between um, Hebrews and these other groups. But that would also lend to the mixing of the religion. And so the Samaritans, who were the descendants of those people, practiced a form of Judaism, but it was very um, much mixed with pagan beliefs as well. And so uh, the Samaritans' worship was, in a sense, a profane kind of worship. But the debate between this woman at the well and Jesus is over where is the proper place of worship? Well, Jesus goes on to tell the woman that there is coming a time when not just, uh, not, not on this mountain, nor even in Jerusalem, but the true worshipers of God will be those who worship him in spirit and in truth. And so the location of Jerusalem and being that special place of worship is not something that carried on into the New Testament era as far as uh, being the only place where we can worship. And now, in the New Testament era, anywhere that there are saints assembled becomes that special place of God's, uh, um, special place of God's presence. Now let me uh, talk to you for a moment about the book of Revelation. The uh, book of Revelation is a very popular book among Christians. Many people, when they look at Revelation, they think they can get ideas about 
what life will be like before the second coming of Christ. Other people were afraid of Revelation because of all the symbolism and all the different uh, uh, signs and symbols in the book. It can be very confusing to figure out what it all means. But there is one aspect of Revelation that is often overlooked, and that is that Revelation is a book of worship. In Revelation, we see some of the most beautiful scenes of worship in all of Scripture. Just take, for example, in chapter 4, when we're greeted by 24 elders, and it says this in verse 10, The 24 elders fell down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. We see a similar scene of worship in chapter 7, Here we see 144,000 witnesses who are sealed. (coughs) In verse 9, we uh, see a great multitude. Now the 144,000 listed 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel. And then with verse 9, the multitude, perhaps um, the 144,000 is symbolically representing the completed church which the multitude in verse 9 is representing as well. Uh, And we see similar scenes of worship as we saw in chapter 4 as well. So when we think about um, uh, those scenes in Revelation and the text before us this morning, what is very important is that the people of God are people of praise. Let's look again at uh, Psalm 48, verse 1. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. So, it is um, a a good thing when God's people are grateful uh, to be in His presence, where we are joyful to be able to praise Him and give Him glory. (laughs) It's a sad thing if the praises of God are not readily on our lips at all times. Even in difficult circumstances, we ought to be people of praise. For we have many things to be grateful for. The Old Testament believers uh, certainly had many things to be grateful for. Out of all the people in the world, they were the only ones to receive God's word in writing. Now, God's law is written on everyone's heart. We know that in Romans chapter 1. We know that man instinctively knows who God is and in some sense knows what God expects of him as well. Yet it was to the Hebrews who received God's word in writing. There would be no question of what God expected from mankind based on what he delivered to the Hebrews. (laughs) No one else received that that direct word from God, except the Hebrews. And so, in that sense, Jerusalem, the city, again, it's more than just a city, but it's actually the people who represent that city. Jerusalem is is supposed to be a city of praise. It says in verse 2, Beautiful in elevation 
is the joy of all the earth, Mount Zion. Mount Zion was the joy of all the earth. It's interesting when we talk about Jerusalem uh, as the joy of all the earth. Uh, Again, there was that special presence of God that could only be experienced in Jerusalem. So worshipers in the Old Testament era had to go to Jerusalem for that presence, for that experience. Uh, And so it was a joyful place to be in the presence of God. But as we move into the New Testament era, as I said, things began to change. Um, the, the, the plan of uh, worship being centered only in Jerusalem was going to start changing, as Jesus even explained to the woman at the well. And so, uh, whereas Jerusalem would no longer be the focal point of the people of God, it would still be the source of that joy because it would be out from, from Jerusalem where all the uh, all that praise would, event, would, would come from. Uh, you know, when we look at the book of Acts, we see the progression. We started in Jerusalem, then we go to Judea, then to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When we get to the end of the book of Acts, we see that there are Christians in Rome even, as far away from Jerusalem in that day as you could possibly get. And so, uh, John Calvin, when talking about the splendor of, of Jerusalem, says this, not simply the natural splendor of Zion, but the fact that Christ's gospel started there and has flown out to the whole world from that point is a good is why Jerusalem really is the center of of joy for the people of God. Um, second thing that we should notice from this text is the church, the fear of all the earth, the church, the fear of all the earth. We really don't have to look very hard around the world and even in our own culture as well to see that the Christian church doesn't get a lot of um, fanfare in the world. Uh, There are those who have a spirit of indifference towards the church, towards Christians. Uh, They they may hear about the gospel and say, well, that's okay, but I don't really have time for that. I don't really care. You guys do what you want to do. Just don't tell me how I have to live my life. And so there's a different indifference uh, sometimes, but when uh, sometimes it goes from just having an indifference to outright hatred for the people of God. Uh, we think of uh, things going on in our culture today, and not just our culture, but around the world, where persecution is around every corner for Christians. <laughs> We see this hatred that the world has for Christians, for God, and understand that this is not a hatred against you personally or against Christians uh, as, as individuals, but this is an assault against God himself, against Christ himself. Psalm 2.2 says this, The kings of the earth set themselves 
And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So again, this is not an assault against us as Christians in in a personal sense. This is uh, a lashing out against God himself. And so as the people hate God, it stands a reason that they're going to hate those who represent God in the world. And that would result in the persecution we see against Christians in just about every corner of the globe now. One thing that we will notice, though, about the hatred that people have towards God and towards his people, we notice that there's a fear and a dread associated with that hatred as well. In verses 4 through 6, we see a little bit of this. For behold, the kings assembled, they came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic, they took to fight. Trembling took hold of them there, anguish as a woman in labor. So yes, there is a fear when it comes to the enemies of God towards the people of God. There's a fear and a dread. Uh, As the Israelites were leaving Egypt and heading towards the Promised Land, they would encounter enemy armies, such as the Amorites or the Moabites. And many times these, these forces were afraid of what the Israelites were doing. They had heard about Israel in Egypt, how the, the, the ten plagues and the death of the firstborn and the dividing of the sea, they heard about these things from the Israelites. And they were fearful of what Israel being on the march was going to mean to their empires. And so... Many of these armies, such as the Amorites and the Moabites, were larger and stronger than the Hebrews were. But because God was fighting for the Israelites, they were uh, often successful against these much larger armies. Now, we also have to understand, though, that it's not as if Israel... Uh, didn't have any failures in the uh, aspect of their military. Uh, They had many uh, instances where they lost battles, where they were defeated in war against some of these other armies. And much of uh, the reason for that was that um, God many times had to discipline his own people for their sins, for their rebellion against him. And so, uh, one such instance, of course, was in the book of Numbers. Uh, They uh, had sent in spies to check out the promised land, to have an idea of what to expect when they went in there. And uh, the spies came back with some false reporting. And as a result of this false reporting, the Israelites did not want to go into the land they rebelled against the Lord who commanded them to go in. And so uh, they uh, were, uh, were told that because they rebelled against the, the Lord and because these spies spread a false uh, report, then they were not going to be allowed to go in for a certain time. 
Uh, and when they heard this, they, you know, they, they were sad, and they said, okay, well, we're going to go in, we're going to do what the Lord commanded, and we're going to take the land. But Moses warned them, if you go in now, you're not going to be successful. The Lord has said that this generation will not see the promised land. And if you go in and try to take it now, you will be defeated in war. And they didn't listen to Moses. And they ended up having quite a defeat by the hands of those who were in the land. Because they did not obey God's word. Uh, another instance, of course, would be the Babylonian captivity where uh, not just uh, a few, but the entire nation was taken into captivity in Babylon. And, you know, even today, churches and Christians will struggle. Uh, it's not as if uh, there aren't difficult times. What we see in Psalm 48 uh, ought to be seen more of an ultimate idealistic sense, maybe not something that we actually see in this life uh, in a literal uh, way. And uh, I say that because um, Christians do experience hardships. Uh, Churches do uh, have to um, sometimes have uh, difficult circumstances. Sometimes the churches have to close for various reasons. And so... Uh, it would seem that every now and then in this life the enemy does have the upper hand once in a while. Uh, and so we shouldn't think that this uh, means the scripture is, 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 is wrong or that uh, somehow um, the, the psalmist here uh, doesn't have a true sense of reality in, in the world. Uh, we should probably see this as an, in an ideal, idealistic sense, in the sense that ultimately, at the end of the day, when everything has been uh, finally um, brought to pass, God's people will be victorious, the church will be successful, and the enemies of God will be scattered. And so... Uh, you know, we do see some of that now. We've seen some of that for the whole history of the of the people of God. But the ultimate sense of that delivery uh, deliverance will not be until uh, the eternal state. Now, when we look at um, other portions of Scripture, like Roman, uh, Revelation chapter 12, we see why there's such a hatred for the church, such a hatred for the people of, of God. Um, now, uh, in chapter 12, uh, we have a couple of Im- images there. We have uh, a woman and a dragon. Uh, we don't have to think very hard on who the dragon is. Verse 9 tells us that the dragon is Satan. And the woman in this chapter uh, probably is um, representing Israel. Um, In verse 12, it says this, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows he has a short time. In chapter 12, 
There's the woman who gave birth to the, the Messiah. The Messiah is caught up to heaven. And so um, the dragon uh, attempted to make war against the Messiah, but he was defeated. And so as a result, he now turns his attention to the offspring of the Messiah or his followers. So in verse 17... It says this, and the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So, yeah, uh, Satan has a short time to operate, and so this makes him angry. Uh, the cross really was the death blow for him. It really was the deciding. Uh, um, battle in the war uh, against um, Satan. Uh, So, as a result of that, he knows his time is limited. He knows his time is short. And this makes him angry. This makes Satan fight like he is a wounded animal. And that makes him very dangerous. But it also explains to us why there's been such difficulty for the people of God for the last 2,000 years, it's because Satan has this rage against us, and <laughs> he knows his time is short, uh, and so he's making the most of his time now. And while this may seem like something that should make us uh, uh, fearful and, and worried and depressed, we have Jesus' own words in Matthew sixteen eighteen, where he says, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. That gives us the image of the church being on the offensive. The church is on the move against the kingdom of of darkness. Because it says here that the gates of Hades shall not prevail against the church. Because God's people, uh, of course, Christ being our victor, our warrior king, he's the one who is leading the charge against the forces of Satan. And there's no way that certain victory will not be achieved because of our warrior king. (coughs) The third thing that we should notice is the church making the Lord known throughout the earth. Uh, The church making the Lord known throughout the earth. We spoke a little bit about Old Testament worship for a moment. First, we had the tabernacle in Exodus and Leviticus. And um, now, when the tabernacle was standing, um, there was not a strict policy about where worship could take place in, 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 in Israel. Um, many times there were other places such as high places, and these places were often used for uh, burnt sacrifices. <laughs> now, once the temple was uh, built, these high places were no longer permissible. And so by that point, the only place for worship for sacrifices was going to be the temple. Now, after the uh, time of the United Kingdom, after the death of Solomon, when the kingdom was divided, 
the southern kingdom of Judah does retain Jerusalem and does retain the temple itself. But many times, <laughs> the southern kings would uh, still use these high places for worship. Sometimes they were used for godly worship, but most of the time, they were pagan shrines. And this would continue to be the case where Jerusalem's importance, again, would continue, uh, 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 obviously, before the exile. Uh, Jerusalem was the center of worship. And even after the exile, when the Israelites come back to Jerusalem, they rebuild the temple, they reestablish the, the altar and worship in Jerusalem. And this would continue to be the case through the New Testament era. Uh, and again, as I mentioned before, there would be a change coming into the New Testament era as far as where worship had to take place. It would no longer be centralized in Jerusalem, but it could be anywhere that God's people were assembled. Uh, so we have this uh, uh, phrase in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, but you have come to bound Zion into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels. So what the writer of Hebrews is basically saying is that now wherever God's people are assembled, that becomes the new Jerusalem. That becomes the new uh, city of worship. We are Mount Zion, beloved. We are Mount Zion. We are Jerusalem. Um, we are right now in God's presence, as that presence was felt in Jerusalem itself, in the city, in the temple. That is experienced now when God's people come together for worship. Um, now, um, one interesting thing about the Old Testament temple was that um, we see this in verse 9 how. <laughs> When the Old Testament worshipers would think about Jerusalem and the temple, they could not help but think about God's mercy to them. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. When you really stop to think about the sacrificial system in the temple, it really was a testimony of God's grace to the people. Uh, When the worshipers would see those animals dying in their place, recognizing that they deserved the punishment that those animals were taking. Um, Now, of course, those animals were simply pointing forward to the uh, sacrifice that Christ would eventually do with his own body. So those animal sacrifices were not in and of themselves anything that would bring about their, their, their forgiveness or their their atonement, but they were uh, pointing an image to the people that your sins deserve what that animal was getting. Your sins deserve the punishment that those animals were taking. And we see the same imagery with Christ's own body, that when Christ was being crucified, that's what our sins deserved, was that that sacrifice. And so when the people saw Jerusalem and the temple and 
the sacrifices, they could not help but think about what their sins deserved and how God in His mercy was withholding that from them. And so thinking again about how the praise of God's people just overflows out of Jerusalem. Uh, Verse 10, As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. And again, Jerusalem being the center of worship and how that praise just flows out of Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. Um, you know, in Isaiah chapter 2, we have this imagery of all nations flowing into the house of the Lord and the law going forth from Zion. All we have to do is read in Acts chapter 2, uh, what, and then the chapters following that, what happened in Jerusalem? You know, 3,000 people were saved that first Pentecost. And it didn't stop in Jerusalem. We move on to Samaria, who was that group that had a, a faulty form of worship, and they were receiving the gospel. In chapter 10, we have Cornelius, the first full Gentile to actually be a part of the New Testament church. And then, again, it goes as far as Rome. In the final chapters of Acts, we find Christians in the city of Rome. So, you know, God's praise starting in Jerusalem would not remain only there, but we see how it has actually flown out to the rest of the world. Fourthly and finally, the church, firmly established from age to age. The church, firmly established from age to age. Toward the end of this psalm, we see some of the physical aspects of the city of Jerusalem. In verse 12, walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers. Now, from a physical standpoint, Jerusalem was quite the uh, was quite the city. It was very easy to defend. It had steep ridges on um, both uh, um, on each side, so it was hard for an enemy force to come against it and to attack it just easily. Uh, and of course, many <coughs> many of the uh, ways that Jerusalem was defeated was simply because of the sin of the people. That God brought about a sin, uh, the judgment of Jerusalem, because of the sins of His own people. That they needed to be disciplined. The true defense for Jerusalem had always been the Lord Himself. There was one particular instance when the Assyrians were on the move and. <laughs> They were about to wipe out Jerusalem uh, in about 700 B.C. about. And uh, so the Lord, what he did was he struck the Egyptians with a, or the Assyrians with a plague. And so that they were not able to take out the city of Jerusalem like their plan was. And so um, the Lord 
was a defender of the city. He was a defender of his people. Every now and then he would withhold that hand of defense as a form of discipline. But the fact that Israel and Jerusalem was never completely wiped out um, completely was due to God's protection, protection of the city. You know, it was for God's covenant's sake. The covenant's sake that God would preserve uh, Jerusalem and the people. Uh, after the Babylonian captivity, the Lord would bring the Jews back to Jerusalem. And now we also uh, read about the ultimate delivery of Jerusalem throughout the scriptures. Uh, even here in verse 8 of our chapter as we have heard, so we have seen in the city of our God, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. So there's an ultimate sense in which the city will eventually be delivered. God's people will eventually be vindicated against their enemies. Uh, in Zechariah chapter 12, there's imagery there of all nations laying siege against Judah and Jerusalem. Again, this is imagery of that depicts the enemies of God coming against his people, against the church. And in Ezekiel 38, we have, um, again, uh, um, Gog and Magog coming against the people of God, which is another imagery we find again in Revelation chapter 20. And so we see that God's enemies are breathing out threats against them. It's very uh, difficult for the church. Yet we do see God's ultimate deliverance of uh, his people. God will establish Mount Zion forever, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. So it's important as we conclude here to think about, um, you know, we want to make sure that our faith is based on God's word and not on uh, feelings of sentimentality. Um, we could get very, uh, uh, we could really get down on ourselves if we look at the condition of the church. We look at the condition of uh, the the enemies of of the church coming against us, and we could think that we don't have a whole lot uh, to be positive about. We could think that maybe maybe the days are running short for the church, for Christianity, um, and maybe we need to come up with some other plan. But... Again, that's why we want to be rooted in God's word because we can have confidence in the future of the church when we read things like Psalm 48. When we see the, uh, um, the confidence that the psalmist here has not simply of the city of Jerusalem itself or even of the people, but of the God who is protecting that city. Remember that Jesus said that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. They shall not prevail against his people. And so 
even though it may seem at times that God's enemies are winning the day, we have Christ's own assurance that that will never be the case, and that there will always be a faithful remnant, no matter what the opposition looks like. So if this is true of the church in a general sense, if this is true of the church in a large uh, corporate sense, this in no way means that your trials, your tribulations, your difficulties aren't also being protected by the Lord himself. And so you can have that confidence that uh, as God has protected his people in the past, He's also going to protect you through different trials and tribulations. And so, again, the Lord has been guiding our fathers in the past, and He will continue to guide us as well. Uh, Let's pray. Again, our Father, we are um, grateful to You. We praise Your name. Let us be that city of praise that You call us to be. Let us be those who uh, recognize your power and your strength and your uh, consistency with your people and allow us to be those people that, that have your praise on our lips all the time. We thank you for the protection you give us against our enemies. We thank you that even when um, it looks like uh, our enemies are going to win the day. We know ultimately that Christ will be victorious, that he is right now defeating his enemies before him, and eventually he will complete that that process. We pray for the worldwide witness of the church around the world. We pray that despite the enemies of, of your church, that the gospel will still go out and your elect from every nation will be brought in. And we just ask now that you would um, remind us that the ultimate victory is ours, uh, not because of anything that we are capable of, but because your Son, Jesus Christ, is our warrior king. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.